In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. We've got rubbish on the ground here. We've got masks, cans, and people have actually just left bags of rubbish. What do you see here? Ah, uh, just say it's, it's not right. It's just it's unhealthy for everyone going by, especially with children. You don't know what you're going to see on the road or on the streets or what you're going to pick up or what the kids would pick up. I just come. I just go by this road now and again all the time and just cut through. I collect up from school, so I just head home there and that's it. And you see, you see the rubbish. It's not to do with me. It's not my rubbish. So someone else says, yeah. Okay, we better go then. I don't take much notice of it really because the wind blows it away. I live up in Shannon Casey Avenue in Summerhill and it's filthy dirty. They send a sweep up as far as the top of the avenue to sweep the top of the avenue. But they do not come down the avenue to clean the avenue. So I've been wandering around the north inner city and there is rubbish just left beside litter bins in bags. There's also human faeces down in the corner. Terrible. Terrible. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. The dirt in the area. They're dumping people, yeah. It's not nice. You know, there is plenty of bins in all day, like... The bins are put out here, right? And what happens is they come from that end with prams and everything else and they dump and the cars stop and dump their dirt into air bins and they're up that height. How does that make you feel? Terrible. It's disgraceful. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. And do you think they are ashamed of themselves? No. Why would they be ashamed? Why would they dump them, you know? And how come they don't put it in their black, green or brown bin? No, they don't. Don't pay for them. That's all. They just throw everything on top, you know. And I'm telling you, people with cars are the same. They come in from outside they, areas? They pull up there and dump them. Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, a quick one for you. Do we need to bring back the positive versions of everyday words? Well, take a listen to this. Are there some words though where the, the, the kind of, if you put a, a, a diss or some, you know, <laughs> a, 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 on, on the front of it, it still means the same thing. The same was like flammable and inflammable. Oh yes, that's always just the real, um, the real head scratcher, isn't it? Yeah, I mean disgruntled actually was, the diss there was, was not a negative, it was simply a, an intensifier. So gruntled originally um, always meant dissatisfied it also meant grunting like a pig but that's a kind of separate issue mm. but and so the disc came along to me really dissatisfied but it was pg woodhouse who introduced the possibility of being gruntled uh, he says a lovely line um in one of his books it says jeeves spoke with a certain what is it in his voice and i could see that if not actually disgruntled he was far from being gruntled uh, which i think is is great and likewise you can't really be shoveled unfortunately at least not yet um, mm. because dishevelled simply comes from the French dishevelé, meaning your hair's all over the place. OK, but we, I mean, it could quite easily become a word, though, if we just use it enough. Well, exactly. Um, and there was a fantastic... Uh, I, I always mention this, actually. It was a fantastic piece in The New Yorker many years ago called How I Met My Wife, and the author, Jack Winter, just created this absolute tour de force of missing opposites and and it is the description of you know him meeting this woman at a party but he talks about her being a descript person in a state of total array and he was traveling cognito and his appearance was maculate um and he was a persona persona grata and sung hero it's just brilliant it's wonderful um and yes it's just possible that these could be you know if we if we go around saying that we're shoveled um it might well happen yeah i would imagine though probably the more effective way of doing it is somehow making these words popular online yeah i mean social media is is a key place for for them to take off and i mean i'm not i think some people have reported this as being a campaign that i'm launching it's nothing that official i've long <laughs> been on a mission to bring these back i have to say um but i do think after the few years that we've had understandably we you know we're bound to be dwelling on the negative that's that's just inevitable but it would be so lovely to bring some of the sparkles back and um you know and introduce some of these words and be kempt kempt means um you know well it actually comes from the german gekempt meaning well combed so wouldn't it be lovely to wake up and feel kempt for once wouldn't it be nice is there has anyone counted are there in within the say in in common usage 
Are there more negative words than, than positive words in the English language? That's such a good question, Sean. Um, my, my guess would be probably simply because I think, as I say, we do like to talk about the sort of negative things. I mean, we are a nation of gossipers. We have hundreds of words for gossip itself, actually. Um, so I'd like to think that. And I'd like to think that, um, well, no, I wouldn't like to think that. I'd like to think that the positives that's still there hiding in the corner of the dictionary and somehow have slipped away could be brought back. But whether over the centuries negative has always tipped the balance, it, it, that would be a fantastic project, a long project, but it would be a wonderful one. Um, but, you know, some people are making real efforts to be playful and joyful um with language as well and there's there's an airport in milwaukee um the general mitchell international airport it's called and they have put up signs uh, where they invite people into their recombobulation lounge uh, where you can recombobulate and uh you know just enjoy a moment of calm um after or before your flight and i love that so i think let's just be playful and let's introduce some of these terms because I, I suppose there's some words where it would it would the meaning of it would be obvious as being uh, uh, the opposite of the of the you know if you say corrigible, who go? What's that? Oh, yeah, that's the opposite of incorrigible. For, yeah, for that, that was around too. So, yes, is, absolutely. Is, is, invincible. Does vincible mean something? Yes, it means that you can vanquish um, them. So, vincible actually is a is a bit of a negative. So, I suppose invincible is is the positive side of that, and that you can't be vanquished and you can't be overcome. Um, but uh, yeah, no, there there are lots. And as you say, I mean, if somebody said they were going around cognito, I think you would absolutely know um, what they meant, <laughs> uh, which is a lovely one. But, um, you know, you could be pecunious, you could be gainly, you could be wieldy, you could be toward as well as untoward. Um, oh, my goodness, just so many of them. I, I, I mean, there are very few, I mean, there are a handful of words where the, the positive never existed, but there are so many where the positive was there. Ept is another one. You could be ept and you could be flappable too. What a brilliant idea. Author Susie Gent from Moncrief. Tell me, you had a you had a bit of a mad weekend. Tell us about it. Oh my goodness, I'm absolutely shattered, to be perfectly honest. Um, I got hacked over the weekend, so um, it's one of these really sophisticated phishing scams. I know, like I think everybody knows, that, that Peter would say to myself and the girls the whole time, never click on a link, never give away your password to anyone, yeah. account numbers, anything like that. And I'd probably get about 10 of those emails a day. And I know just press release, press release, press release. This, what, what happened here was, it was just much more sophisticated, as I said. Um, they sent me a message on Instagram, on my account itself, okay. querying a post that I had up, saying that maybe it violated the sponsored post, you know, kind of law where you have to hashtag add or ST. But at the same time, they sent me an email saying exactly the same thing. So Peter, um, it was Friday evening, Peter said, it's okay, you know, I've, I've, um, deleted that that's you know the message that came in um, and I said well they just sent me an email as well and because I was distracted um, I and because they had done both you know I knew that mm. if it only came in an email ignore it but the fact that it came up with my Instagram account on the app I clicked on it and I entered my password even though I'm, I've known not to do that for years um, but as I say it was a double thing so they got me kind of at both sides and um, then they had my password I used the same password and I believe a lot of people do the same thing. Oh, now I'm I know sure, never yeah. do that again on everything. So they completely deleted my Twitter account and they got into my Facebook, but we managed to get there before them myself. So we kept the two Facebook accounts, um, but they held on to, to Instagram and they have been tracking me the entire weekend looking for ransoms and calling me on WhatsApp um, audio and also sending me messages. I haven't engaged with them at mm. all um, because I knew not to. But um, it's just been really, really upsetting, frightening, really. Um, I got so, my last call yesterday. So they're actually uh, phoning you? Phoning me on WhatsApp, yeah. And, um, uh, and, and I didn't, obviously didn't pick up the phone, but yeah. they then would send pressing messages saying, we know you're there, we want the money, you know, we know you can afford it. And then they started selling my account on to other cyber criminals. I went on to Facebook um, as soon as it happened to go onto their helpline and it was temporarily closed on Friday evening. Uh, finally got through to them on Saturday morning and um, went down and made a report to the police station because somebody advised me to do that and that mm. was actually quite helpful. I wouldn't have thought yeah, that the okay. could do anything because these people are clearly based in a different country. Um, but they took a report from me and they were also trying to contact 
Facebook from me from their end of things to try and freeze the account so at least I wouldn't lose my entire business. I mean, honestly, Andrea, it was so scary. It was like somebody just lighting a match and just watching the business that I've built up for the last six years just going down in flames. And on Saturday morning, they were deleting my posts one by one, but messaging me at the same time saying, your full account is next, one press of a button and it's gone. And like, I'm just trying to think back when you said at the at the start there, Lorraine, you know, when you mm-hmm. got the initial um, message on Instagram or an email to say mm. that there was something wrong Both. with a post you put up or it was in breach. Like, yeah. if I got a message like that, I'd lose my life because I would I would instantly believe it and think, oh, God, did I do something? You and know, I or did. me too. I went yeah. straight into my page and went to the only post that it might have been. And I'm doing a lovely campaign with Frascati Centre and Black Rock and the Gloss magazine. And I had reposted theirs. So I thought, oh gosh, maybe that's it. So I went and I'd look and it had hashtag SP. So I thought to myself, what are they saying? But they said in the message, unfortunately, if you don't reply to this now, we will have to take your account down in 24 hours. So that's what happened. You know, panic went into me and I thought, oh gosh. You know, and I'm just so annoyed with myself. So easily done though. But seemingly it is. And they are doing it to a thousand Irish people every day, the Gardaí told Andrea. So, you know, if I can be fooled, anybody can be fooled. You never think it's going to happen to you. But, you know, it clearly is happening to more and more people mm. every day. And like, I don't just use my Instagram for work. Um, and it is, a, a you know, a definitely um, for me, a main source of income. It connects me with people. You know, it allows me to work with the charities that I work with, you know, as a brand ambassador. Um, obviously, I get MC work with the brand things that I work with as well. Mm. But also to promote Irish businesses, which I do. Um, regularly people know that I, I do that without charge because we all need a bit of help at the moment yeah. after the last 18 months. So it was just something that, um, yeah, for me, I would just hate for anybody else to go through it. And I, there are four tips. I got tips from the most amazing cyber expert called Paul Dwyer. And um, Connor Pope actually put me in touch with him. And I was lucky uh, that, that I did get in touch with him because he gave me four pointers that I'd love to share with oh, your please listeners. please do, yeah, please because do. Because if I had these, this would not have been a problem. This would not have happened. So firstly, it sounds obvious, but have strong passwords. Like have passwords that are nothing to do with your dog's name or your mother's maiden name or your pet name for your partner, you know, just or your date of birth. Have a really weird password with asterisks and exclamation marks and higher case, lower case, and put it on a piece of paper in your bedside locker. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Don't save it on the password section of your, your settings either. Have different passwords for every single account. I use the exact same password for all of my accounts, and that's why Twitter is now completely gone. Um, number three, then, would be to make sure that you have your phone updated to the latest, whatever it is, 15.2, I think it is, at the moment. I hadn't bothered pressing that button um, over the last little while. I kept saying, I'll come to that eventually. And back up all of your data on iCloud. And when you back it all up on iCloud, make sure you have the storage first, then reset your phone. So clear your phone completely and reset it and then put the stuff back up. That sounds like it's really time consuming. It is a little bit, but honestly, it's not until it's gone you realise, mm-hmm. you know, how important it was. Some handy tips there from Lorraine Keane from Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan. So we're on a school trip. We decided it'd be really good fun to bring all the kids here and we thought they'd really enjoy it. And what's the mood like with the children? Are they scared? Are they nervous? They're absolutely terrified. <laughs> Whatever age you are, you can be scared. We're always nervous. Since yesterday. More excited than nervous. Since yesterday. I wanted to take a day off. <laughs> My name is Carlo Connor. I'm the show director at the Nightmore Room. We have been running with the last 13 years and this year is it's great to be back open and scaring the people of Ireland once again. Could you just describe to me the shows and the experience that are on offer here? Our first haunt is called the Church of the Damned and that's all based on uh, this red woman queen that is controlling a village. After that then we have a, a team that's called Panic Attack and that is exactly what it says on the tin. It's a panic attack. Uh, and then the third house we have is called the Butcher's Boys and... Um, yeah, you're just going to have to see what that one is like. And I spotted on the website that the event isn't recommended to children under 13. So, so how scary is it? Oh, it's pretty scary. You're going to have to go in, Josh. You're going to have to go in. Yeah, we, we recommend 13+. plus. No, I'm not a fan of horrors. I've been nervous about coming here all day. But look, it's, it's Halloween. This is what it's all about. You're going to send me on through now, are you? You're going to have to go through. Absolutely. Anybody that comes here, they have to go through so that they can talk about oh, it Oh, I don't know. I'm shaking already. I'm going to be jumping. <laughs> just so you know. 
Okay, there's someone over there shaking from side to side. Oh, God. There's it's like a church setting. Church of the Damned is right. Someone's going to jump out in front of me. Okay, they have my name. They have my name. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, someone's jumping out. There's someone. I think I'm going to get out of this church. Oh, God. Okay, someone. This is amazing. Going left, right. Now, back through again. This is petrifying. Pitch dark. Just get me through this. <laughs> oh, what an experience. Spine tingling, hair standing stuff all together. If, if you're a fan of horrors, this will be your playground. If you're not a fan like me, then look, it's the one time of the year that we do delve into this kind of stuff. Let's see what these other frightened customers thought of the show this evening. Terrified. <laughs> what was the scariest part? Um... The, dread the person, person on the, the table the person in the cage and that one there that's the same person what yeah. someone came out of the bin you're still panting like you're still scared <laughs> would you be able to sleep tonight after seeing all the no. things no it was the scariest thing <laughs> in my life very scary you know what I mean yeah, very you scary. know yourself like it's just emotional when they run out at you and you turn the corner it's all dark and then they run at you it's pitch dark you don't know what, where yeah, they're coming exactly. from yeah, yeah, yeah you don't yeah, know where it's a real tight in the maze as well would you be able to sleep tonight probably not no <laughs> so what did you think of that yeah no it was very good like I come here every year I've been going like since it opened and this is one of the best years I've got tickets for it again in two weeks like so I'll be back you know why is it that you go every year like what's the thrill you get out of it I don't know it's just really good crack like it's even if you're like scared of it it's still you can laugh about it afterwards so even if you're terrified it's still it's a funny thing to do anyway like Josh Crosby reporting for News Talk Breakfast on Saturday the Anton Savage show explored the challenging world of parenting here's Dr Mary O'Kane Talk to me a little about boredom. Should kids be bored? Oh, yes, they should. And so this comes back to the overcheduling. And gosh, Anton, I'm not saying that for them to take part in some activities is not good for them. No, no, no. I mean, that's, it's great. Team sports and whatever, whatever it might be. But it's so good for our kids to be bored. But again, you see, if we think, oh my gosh, if I want the perfect child, I have to be the perfect parent. So the pressure is on me to do absolutely everything to produce my perfect offspring. There's no such thing as a perfect child. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. But we feel we have to do it. So then we're not letting them get bored because we're feeling, no, I should But it's, it can be very difficult to let a child get bored. It's like the face sitter and alien. Yeah. If, you know, if you're in the same room with them, <laughs> boom, they're on you and there's no way to peel them off. I know. Well, you see, again, but to just, you know, if they say, oh, nothing to do, I'm bored. Oh, I wonder what you're going to come up with. And step away from the child. But we tend to go, oh, well, now let's do this, let's do that. If we back off, do you know, children learn through free play, Anton, and even older kids, free play when they have to come up with their own ideas free play even together you know when they're acting out stuff together and they're playing away and, and they're learning all these skills they're learning so much and they're they're kind of working out their interpretation of the world but they say we're bored they're bored and what do we do we're, we're organising organising you know funny Anton levels of anxiety in our children have gone up and up pre-Covid levels of anxiety were increasing all the time really there was a big study a lady called Mary Cannon the Royal College of Surgeons and it was about I think it was about 2013 she did the research and she found that by the age of 13 one in three of our children have experienced a mental health difficulty by the age of 24 half of them have and anxiety was one of the highest ones and there is a theory that I happen to subscribe to that one of the reasons they're getting more anxious is because of the way we parent. Now, when they're older, obviously, social media and stuff has a lot to do with it. But you think about when they're little, if they're maybe a little bit less resilient, if we're always hovering. You know, and I hate the terms helicopter parenting, lawnmower, now, helicopter here. I, I probably was a lawnmower with the helicopter rotor for years of my children's lives. But it means that if we're always protecting them and clearing a path, they're not learning. You know what? Sometimes things go wrong, but I'm strong. I'm but capable. it's so hard for a parent to say, I won't do that. I, you know, either I leave them to be in a situation where I, like when they come back in crying because somebody has been mean to them, the sense of, well, I shouldn't have put them in that environment or I in some way should have defended them against it. Oh, yeah. Very hard to say, well, that that's, you know, suck it up. That's how you learn. <laughs> but part of it is it's the constant jumping in, you know? And I'm, I'm not saying don't empathise. When something goes wrong with them, oh, empathise. Like, oh, pet, it sounds like you've had a really tough day. But then what do we do? We go, no, I'll tell you what, you should 
do. Now, you go out there tomorrow and you tell him blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? We kind of jump in that if we can just step back a little bit and say to them, so they come in and they would be row with their friend out in the road. The empathy first. Oh, pet that. Oh, that sounds hard. What do you think you might do? So we're putting it back on them. You're strong. You can come up with an idea of how you might handle it rather than constantly jumping in. Can I ask on the thing of the overscheduling, are we being too, are we giving too much credit to parents? Because I am sure there are some parents who will think for the hour that the child is playing whatever they are playing on that pitch, if I'm lucky, I'll get a pitch where I can park in the car and stay warm while I watch the match. I have my phone. I have a cup of coffee. I may even have a bun. This is my time. And that's good though, Anton. Oh, come on. We've all been that parent, you know, definitely. And that's good. And it is good for them to take part in the activities. It's be completely over scheduling. It's uh, they come in and they get their homework done and then we're rushing here and we're rushing there. What have we got on Saturday? We've got we start with this and then we go to that and then we go to the other. A little bit balance, isn't it? A little bit of everything. Balance is key. And yes, we need the break to try and farm them all into one activity. So you have none of them in the car with you and you can breathe for that little bit of time. And that's no harm either. I mean we it's not about putting pressure on ourselves either. Some solid advice there from parenting expert Dr. Mary O'Kane from The Anton Savage Show. And of course, you can tune into Anton every Saturday morning from 9 till 11. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. On Tuesday, Dr. Chris Luke joined Pat Kenny on The Pat Kenny Show. You make a point that uh, difficulty makes people difficult. And that applies equally to the patient as well as to the practitioner. Very much so. If I was to to, uh, identify one simple mantra uh, to tell all uh, care workers, particularly the front line, you know, you know, I know that heroin user is in for the third time with an overdose. I know that a little 15-year-old girl has come in for the 14th time in four years having cut her, her wrists. You know, I know that, that that elderly man who's homeless is, is in and out every every third day. But before you, you know, uh, before you tear your hair out, just try and remember where he's come from. You know, he comes from a third generation of heroin users in one of the flats in the inner city in Dublin. Uh, he, he has been starved and beaten and abused all of his, you know... Uh, you know, young, young life and, and now is coping with his desperate, you know, mental and spiritual pain by self-medicating with drink or tobacco or heroin or sleeping tablets or whatever. I remember you telling me that, uh, you know, the heroin problem in, in Dublin particularly would burn itself out because you saw that happen. Uh, and the reason it burns itself out is that most of the people who take the heroin are dead. This happened in Scotland. Yes. Uh, the, the problem is that the... The whole uh, drug trade has become so globalised. In parallel with the globalisation of of big commerce has been the globalisation of of big drugs. Uh, So they're now hiring some of the best brains for for IT services, for smuggling services. You know, they're buying people from the public services all around the world to advise them on how to smuggle drugs in submarines from Colombia through West Africa into Rotterdam or... To the or just to, to off the west coast of of, of Cork, um, you know, and the, the 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 drug trade now globally is is one of the it's the second or third biggest uh, trade as far as I can understand in terms of, of net worth. So unfortunately, that old idea, that old you know notion that you know that the, 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 all the drug users would eventually die, you know, is no longer quite so valid because in the meantime, while they're waiting for the next good crop, because obviously uh, heroin, like every other harvest. Uh, you know, like Beaujolais, there's good years and there's bad years. And in a bad year, the heroin users of Dublin, I remember back working in James's in 1983, when heroin users in Dublin in those days couldn't get heroin, they injected temazepam, which was one of the old-fashioned, you know, Valium-type drugs. And they were they were egg-shaped capsules, uh, you know, cris- you know glycerin-type capsules. And they, they would break them open and they, they'd inject the fluid into their, into their groin. And they were known as eggs. So, in other words, uh, drug users, adapt and in addition to drug users adapting, drug dealers adapt and they and they start flooding the market with, with perhaps synthetic versions of heroin or cannabis 
their LSD and that's what all these new drugs for example they are synthetic versions of the old drugs that are designed to uh, overcome the, 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 the cyclical you know uh, good years and bad years of the natural drugs Now you write in great detail about your medical career and the ups and downs and the challenges and so on I'm intrigued by some of the things you say that sometimes the best diagnostic tool might be the handshake of yes. an experienced doctor. Uh, absolutely. And one of my concerns now is that the what the, the Americans call Gestalt or, you know, which is basically this instinct, this intuition that the really, uh, really practiced and experienced clinical doctor or clinical nurse will develop uh, may be lost. And one of my current, uh, uh, you know, uh, ideas at the moment in terms of teaching med students is what I call desert island diagnostics, where they're not allowed to refer to to their mobile phone app, they're not, they're, they're, they, the Wi-Fi is theoretically switched off and there's no electricity. So they have to resort to really old-fashioned clinical practice. Now, clinical, the word clinos means bed and clinical means bedside. So bedside medicine is about approaching the patient with a smile, a reassuring you know, exchange of, of looks and a warm handshake. And that exchange of warmth, the, literally the flesh, the warmth of your flesh touching the, the flesh of the other person, whether it's their shoulder or preferably with their hand and squeezing it, you know, reassuringly is unbelievably powerful uh, because as I say to our, our trainees and our nurses, you know, everybody comes into our emergency department waiting room. That's 1.2 million people a year, Pat, come into the course of the population of Ireland, come in you know, theoretically every year into our a departments. And they're all anxious and stressed because they've all heard horror stories. So the very best thing a doctor and nurse can do, apart from seeing them immediately as, as, or as soon as they can do, is to bring them in, sit them down so that they're, they're reasonably relaxed and hold their hands and say, hello, my name is Dr. Luke. Uh, hello Mrs Smith how can we help and at the same time as you're holding their hand you offer them a glass of cold water because as I've just experienced here this morning in the studio a glass of cold water will reduce stress levels by about two or three points out of ten Instantly, It's an extraordinary mixture of placebo and physiological effect, the effect of a little sip of cold water. I have seen very, very senior doctors nearly collapse in front of an interview panel of 12 people until they got that little tiny sip of cold water. So, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, and the nurses in Liverpool joke because I used to give, I used to be known as OJ in Liverpool because I gave juice with my, with my water there. But now I, I always say, I'm sorry, the Irish service can only afford water. But so it's that kind of, really old-fashioned welcome, hospitality, kindness. And kindness, it's so much more than this endless, tedious online lip service. It's lip service, kindness, compassion is an equation. It is empathy plus action. And the action is holding the hand, is sitting him in a seat, getting the seat, getting the glass of water and sitting down at their uh, and then at, at the eye level exchanging uh, looks and then starting with this, you know, seriously obvious concern. Dr. Chris Luke from The Pat Kenny Show. Sinead Gallagher-Hederman, who's the mother of Theo, who was born via surrogacy uh, in the Ukraine. Sinead, you're very welcome to the show. When was Theo born? Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Um, Theo was born on the 5th of April uh, this year. So, um, yeah, he's only six months old at the minute. Um, but so I, so what, what's your legal relationship then to Theo? Um, I have none as, as we speak. Um, my husband actually only got appointed as his parent um, last week. So um, literally for the first six months of Theo's life, he had no legal guardian or parent in the country in Ireland. So he was basically awarded the state. So um, it was extremely distressing for that six months and worrying, um, you know, having my son, but yet the two of us could do nothing to protect him. Um, all those children are very, very vulnerable in that position. And, you know, we've, um, as Irish Families to Surrogacy, I'm a committee member, like we've been engaging with government and we've had massive cross-party uh, cross support. Um, and we've been reassured by the three departments we've engaged with in the with the representatives that international surrogacy is a top priority. Um, they have said that they are working to chart a pathway for international surrogacy. But, you know, when we read this article and um, reported in the Business Post on Sunday, I mean, it just literally all our hopes and dreams to be recognised and have a legal relationship with both parents for our children were dashed because, I mean, it just... We couldn't believe what we were reading, like, yeah. because we've been engaging so much and they've been so supportive. 
and we've been offering pathways like we have told them that the UK are doing it since the 1980s. They have a pathway through the circuit court for domestic surrogacy and for international surrogacy, they go through the high court. So it's been done in, in an awful lot of countries. And we are like, I think this was there was a commissioned in 2000, I think, by I think the then Minister Health, Minister for Health and Children, Michal Martin commissioned the AHR. Um, back in 2000 so we're waiting 21 years like for you know yeah. both parents to be recognized and like for the children like it literally I can't like I literally have so much anxiety day to day worrying about Theo and I know that's representative of all of us with children born to surrogacy and like we've gone a really really difficult road to get there um, mm. and we're still left trying to fight for recognition to be like their mother or their parents, you know? And it's like, I was saying it to somebody else as well. Like, how do I explain to Theo, like when he's old enough to understand? And I have to say to him, well, Theo, I'm your mammy, but the laws tell me that I'm not. Like, I just think the psychological damage that could do to children And like, Connor well, sorry, Sinead, I mean, the psychological, the psychological, the yeah. psychological, I suppose, burden you have to carry at the moment as well. Like, there's a lot of things yeah. you can't do with the. I mean, like, I mean, no. I'm just thinking of signing up for crash, bringing to the doctor, signing any consent forms, if anything, uh, God forbid, w- w- were to go wrong with them medically. You're basically your husband has to do all that because. I, I, yeah. I don't mean this to sound cruel, but you're nothing to Theo legally. No, I am. And that, that, that's the most heartbreaking thing about it. It's like, like I sat outside my doctor's surgery and Mark brought him in for his first set of injections because I couldn't legally sign for those. Like I literally cried my eyes out outside the thing, outside the doctor's surgery. And I was thinking to myself, like, you know, I've fought and fought to have Theo and we have fought as his parents, but you just feel so hopeless in yeah. this situation. And you're just like, you, you know, we have had commitment from government, but it's just, um, when we just read this report, it just kind of threw everything up in the air because it was like, we've hundreds of children in Ireland as it's, as we speak that are, are here. We've children that are approaching 17 years of age and they still don't have a legal relationship with both parents. From The Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. It's really deteriorating now. Like every... Every couple of weeks you come out and you're like, the, the, as you can see, the plaster's falling off now. And you can pick the blocks with your finger. You can see the cracks here, so I can put my finger in here. Yeah. Yeah, look, that's just crumbling under my hand. It's just crumbling under your finger. It's devastating, really, as it's so tough to deal with. We have approval from the council that we are um, approved demolish. So how long do you have left? Well... This is the thing, we don't know. It's deteriorate. It deteriorates at different speeds. In the summertime, uh, it, this fell off in the summertime, but when the winter starts, the frost and the snow and the ice, it rapidly increases tenfold. Weather, weather, the weather is a massive thing to do with, and there's nothing to stop the weather getting on. So do we have a year? We don't know. We're pretty optimistic people but I'll tell you this does drag you down there is no doubt about it no matter how optimistic you are you cannot get away from this it's on your mind from morning noon and night anybody that knows me would have said oh she's such a happy-go-lucky girl and you know good crack well I'll tell you that has all changed I've had to sign up to a webinar uh, that they've put on for anybody that has mica um, just to help us to try and cope with the trauma that's that's now with us, but the trauma to come is going to be even more. To watch that house go down is just going to be like a death. I'll tell you, we're holding it together for our kids, um, but there's only so long that you can hold it together for. Like we are going to crumble along with our homes. They really need to come and help us. We were talking about it all day at school, and it's the only thing we kind of talk about. And with mommy and daddy talking about it you understand more about it and it just it makes you worry about how your house is going to progress so you go to school here just outside Boncrana like is there many people in your class who are impacted by Micah there's 15 out of 16 in my class who have Micah and know that they have Micah so do you and your friends be worried oh we'd be very worried and we kind of comfort each other by talking to talking to each other about it 
I worry when I go to sleep that the roof's going to fall on top of me. And my, I was sleeping in my bedroom and I heard a big bang and a big pile of plaster falling off the wall in the morning. Now, you say you and your friends are comforting each other and talking to each other about this, but do you think there should be maybe someone else for 12-year-olds to talk to? Because someone your age should not have to be worrying about whether or not they're going to have a house or a roof over their head. Yeah, I do. I definitely, definitely do. Because a lot of people worry about it, and some people that are younger than than me, they know about it, and they worry about it too. And I feel like everybody should have somebody to talk to. And that's 12-year-old uh, Mackenzie. Uh, the McDade family there are from just outside Buncrana. And listening to Mackenzie, you know, you can really hear the impact that it's having on her and uh, obviously on the children that she talks to in her class. I'm sure parents are trying to shield their children, but that would be pretty much impossible with the ceiling falling in. Yeah, it is pretty much impossible. And being there for a couple of days in the show and this week really hit home for me. It's basically all anyone in the area is talking about. And as you drive around, there's signs up everywhere calling for 100% redress. And there's just so many homes in this area that have been impacted. And, you know, if you are a homeowner who has been lucky enough to escape Micah, there's still no doubt that you'll be related to someone or know someone or have a neighbour who is affected by this. So people are consumed by this in the area. And for children, as we heard from 12-year-old Mackenzie, they're worrying about will they have a roof over their head or will they be studying for their leaving certs in a mobile home or a caravan or there's other students who are just worrying about are they going to have to up sticks and leave their friends or will they ever be able to go to college because any savings that mummy and daddy have will be spent on trying to put a roof over their family's heads and I suppose college is just something they don't even want to think about right now. And I've been speaking to Angeline Ruddy. She's the acting deputy principal of Moville Community College she herself lives in a mica-affected home that will need to be demolished. And she says there needs to be more help for young people impacted by this. The first day back at school, I can remember going through my role to see if some of the students that I knew had had their house, one, one house had been demolished and others that were working on the process. And I scanned through my roles looking for the particular students, praying that they were still able to live within their community and attend the same school. Down the line, we're going to find students dispersed. They are going to have to live maybe in Derry, some of them even further afield, and start in fresh schools because there's no accommodation available. And like, I mean, at the minute, we're already witnessing students that we know are going to have to study for their leaving cert in a mobile home or makeshift sheds, some of them used as homes. And I mean, I don't know if you realise how harsh the Donegal climate is, but I can't imagine what it's going to be like studying for a leaving cert in a mobile home with our weather and uh, siblings running around. Um, our students are totally on the back foot in this and they need serious support. So is the support there for students at the minute who, who are impacted by MICA? Uh, we do our best as a school. I mean, the ETB has pleaded for extra assistance in this and it's assistance that's greatly needed. I watch the Career Guidance Counselors on a daily basis struggling with uh, the influx of anxiety um, I know anxiety is high everywhere at the minute, but I'm telling you, the anxiety levels in Inishowen are astronomical and they're off the radar. And I mean, we we need resources to deal with this. Students in your school are probably thinking, or should be thinking, about what college they're going to go to eventually. Are some students now thinking, will I get to college because mummy and daddy the savings that they have are being spent on the the house? Absolutely. Um, Some of our students uh, know that they're no longer going to get to college. Some of them have lost motivation completely and they will tell you, how can I study whenever I don't know? You're talking about college, miss. I'm talking about where am I going to live next week? And that's the harsh reality that we are living through. Barry White reporting for The Pat Kenny Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk. On Friday, Barbara Scully visited Super Value in Blackrock to see whether it's possible to do a sustainable shop that actually makes a difference. So we're here in the pasta department. There's a huge range here in Super Value. 
but there's quite a difference in packaging and again price so maybe talk yeah. us through what we should be looking for i mean i i would choose the the box of of pasta because i know that's easily recyclable the cardboard box um although now the the plastic now can be recyclable you can put your soft plastic in the recycling bin and it is cheaper but if you have the resources i would go more for the cardboard box because is that easier to recycle? It's easier to recycle, right. yeah. Okay. And of course, the mantra is reduce, reduce. reuse. Yeah. And recycle is the last of those three options. But there is, a bit like your packaged fruit, there is quite a difference in the price point Exa between exactly. a one euro packet of penne in a plastic bag and a 229 yeah. penne in a box. But another alternative, and this is where, you know, people who know zero waste shops that they, you can buy this stuff without packaging and you bring your own oh. bag or you bring your own container and you decant and it's actually quite quite economical. And this is what we were pushing supermarkets. Can they offer yes. dry goods, yeah. uh, loose, that you can put into your own bag? It's like going back, isn't it? it to is, the, to yeah. the old Findlater shops yeah, in the yeah, 60s exactly. where you went in with your bag and you just filled up with, with whatever you need. So that's our Uncle Ben's basmati rice, but that's all loose in there. And it's in a, it's in a, box, it's in a box rather than a plastic bag. Versus the boil in the bag. So you get less. This, um, I think it's actually more expensive, and you have the residual bag in place. So, you don't need. No. There's no so need more to boil things in a bag. Thing is just make sure you get your portions right, because oftentimes people will cook too much rice. So you need to go I online. I know all about that. And you, know, it, you need less than you actually think. And the, the trick is to weigh it. Exactly. I didn't realize that. The measure is one cup per person. Yeah. No, yeah. well, I was doing, you see, cups vary. Do you yeah. know? And in a house where there is no cups, there's only mugs. We well, were all big fatties. <laughs> <laughs> decided oh okay we've got a weighing scales we're going to weigh out 50 grams wow i have never seen anything like this before in a supermarket um we've just come across a counter that it looks to be provided by the happy pair where people can fill up their own containers or they have little bags weigh your container beforehand so you don't have to use the paper bags which is even better even better and they've got rice penne pasta whole wheat lentils granolas Couscous. And couscous. The whole wheat penne is two fifty per kilogram, right. and actually the bag of pasta is two fifty per half a kilo. So actually, it's more economic to, to buy actually it, do this. To do this. This is a great innovation, um, and obviously it shows that it can be done. And some of these containers are almost empty, so obviously people are using it. Buy the product, not the packaging. And so here you can reuse the packaging over and over again. Over here is a new brand called True Eco, and they have the whole station set up. It's quite nice and you have an empty bottle and you fill it up with whatever product you want. And you, if you buy the bottle, it is $6.50 for a filled up price. But if you bring your own bottle back, it's, it's reduced to $5.54. So you get a reduced price for bringing your own packaging. So it incentivizes people to refill their products. This should be done in every single shop around the, world, around the country. And the fact that it's here shows that it can be done. It's not a major, really big deal to, do, to provide this. We need to create new systems yeah. that um, Oftentimes people are in a rush and they don't want to refill what they have here. So even if you can have something pre-filled that you take home, but you can bring the packaging back and sure. they will wash it and you can get a new one. And I mean, I know sometimes people can be cynical about these brands that yes. call themselves eco-friendly. Like, are they really? But this brand here is Lily's Eco Clean Washing Up Liquid. And I see that it's an Irish uh, yeah. company from County Galway. We want products that have less um, chemicals, phosphates that go into the water and cause eutrophication of the waterways. Sure. So, well, this uh, is great. Yeah. yeah, well done. And they're not that expensive either for the size of the bottles. This was a bio bag, and see, it says okay to compost. So make sure that is there. Please don't put plastic bags into oh, your good. kitchen caddy for your food waste. And I know people like using these bags because it takes the yuck factor out of it and you can put it straight into your, your brown bin. So just make sure whatever plastic liner you put in or that whatever, it, has, it that. has a compostable bag that you put in. Okay, and here's another great idea um, is dog poo bags, um, compostable poo bags. For poo bags, I would just use recycled plastic bags because if you have poo in your compostable bags it's not going to go into your compost pile. it's still going to go into the it's still black, going to go bin. To black bin so i wouldn't waste the money to buy a compostable bag okay that's oh, okay. i would i would rather go to something that's made from recycled plastic that's so obvious now that you say it i feel like a bit, bit of an idiot no but not yeah, at all not at all putting my dog poo in a compostable bag but putting it in the black bin makes no sense no okay great some terrific ideas there from barbara scully and mindy o'brien 
from the heart shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. On Saturday, John Duggan spoke to Denmark legend Peter Schmeichel for Off the Ball. This is the book and it's called One and it's your autobiography which is out now. Tell us why you decided to get involved in this book. Um, yeah, it, was, it, it started about six, seven years ago. Um, I went through some, some, some life changes. I, I left my ex-wife, was, was you know, planning on moving back to England and there's a lot of things I wanted to change in my life. And then out of the blue, I met Laura, which I'm, I'm, I'm married, happily married to now. And it, it, it kind of just completely took my life in a different direction. And it was kind of the first time in my life where, where things really, really changed. And I started to look back at, or started to think about who who that person was, you know. what Came to think about how could I, when I was so young, uh, eight, nine years of age, how could I say and be so specific about wanting to play for Denmark, wanting to play for Manchester United, wanted to win the FA Cup at Wembley uh, f- with Manchester United. And then then go out there and, and, and achieve that. Um, so I was in this process of, you know, changing direction and all this came up. So uh, Jonathan Jonathan Northcroft, uh, who has written this book with me, who's absolutely fantastic uh, the way he's done that. Uh, I met up with him, asked him if he would do the book, write the book, but not for publishing, just for me. Just so, so I could see the book before and, and decide was it a book that I would put out there and you know he, he agreed to do that and there were certain things I had to do take my father to Poland uh, see you know get, go through all of his background his old up- upbringing see the places and um, and unfortunately he was he was not well enough at any point uh, to to, uh, to to take that trip with me and he passed away and and then I kind of put the the whole idea about this book on the back burner and, and then Covid came the, the lockdown and uh, I found myself uh, having absolutely nothing to do, waking up in the morning thinking, hmm, what's going to happen today? Everything was shot, you know, I just sat down in the house. And I spoke to Jonathan and I said, you know, maybe this is the time. So we spent lockdown doing this. Uh, and it's it was brilliant to have that. And it's been a brilliant uh, a brilliant journey for me as well to uh, to do something which I've never ever really done before. Look back and and try to find answers and uh, you know just have a really good look at myself. When I started reading it, Peter, uh, I learned things I didn't know. That it sadly it starts the book with a detail of your grandparents in Poland, mm-hmm. both perished in World War Two. Yeah. Well, my father, my father was born in Poland by Polish parents. Um, he's born in 1933, and uh, as we all know, that <clears throat> Germany invaded Poland in 1939. So he was six. Uh, his father was enlisted, and um, his barracks, which was in Gdansk, it was, it was called Danzig back then, uh, got hit by uh, um, I don't know if the, if the first ever bomb, but it was on the first day, and um, he got very, very badly injured and. Uh, kind of disappeared. He was in hospital and the next day they were going to go and see him and everyone's gone. Patients, doctors, nurses, nobody there. So they they never really found out precisely what happened but he was so badly hurt so uh, it was a given that he'd, he'd passed away. And then uh, my my grandmother, so my father's mother, uh, she, she started to work with the resistance. And when Poland was uh, d- divided into, or Europe was divided into the and east and west, Poland was on the east, uh, belonging to, not belonging to, but controlled by the Russians. And they rounded up everybody they deemed to be an, an enemy of Russia or the state, or could be a problem. And in there was all, all the people who had worked for the resistance. So they um, they literally knocked on the door, took her away in front of the four kids, uh, so this this would have been in 1945, and they they never found out. Well, they did, but for many many years, more than 50 years, never found out uh, what happened to her. Um, so, not 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 the best uh, childhood, and uh, and of course, uh, very very traumatic experiences. Something that also uh, followed my father's life and and his being and uh, and his his behaviors and. Uh, which is is also something that I am I'm touching on in the book. Peter Schmeichel.
from off the ball. OK, I'm going to leave you with now some hidden histories. Here's Donald Fallon. Have a great weekend. On that note then, because there is a famous Twitter page which has, on more than one occasion, it's been criticised for presenting (laughs) colour photographs as if they were the original and they don't actually mention that they've actually been transformed. History in pics, at History in pics, uh, more Twitter followers than the two of us combined. (laughs) 3.4 million (laughs) at the time I sat down uh, to think about all of this a few weeks ago. 3.7 million now. 3.7 million people. It's extraordinary. Follow this Twitter page. Uh, It's enormous. And it posts historical images. But the problem with History in pics is they do it without pretty much any context whatsoever. It's just a picture. Oh, right. okay. So they put up this great image of Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, it pops from your screen in vivid colour. The cars all look fantastic. Uh, and the caption was, Golden Gate Bridge, 1940. No mention that it that had been colourised. And it could kind of easily be presumed that that was an unadjusted primary source. Yeah. Millions of people look at that. It's shared by thousands of people. And you have to ask, there is a good question. You know, Could an image like that surpass its original in search engines? Does that become the authentic mm. uh, and the more familiar image? Like, when does guesswork at play, really, in terms of like the colour of cars and other things? Well, that was it. That I was going to say that I imagine the, the guesswork, even if it is you know, a good, there's good estimates and there's a lot of sophisticated analysis going into the colour tones, that it is only ever going to be a guess at the exact colour or the exact tint that was going to be um, portrayed in the original. I suppose the happy compromise might be that if you are going to have a colourised version that you do make sure that the original doesn't lose its promise. Yes, absolutely. I think when you, when you present them beside their original black and white images uh, and it's made clear that we're looking at a colourised reimagining of the past, I, I think a lot of these concerns kind of around confusion, they, they fade away. And the images, the colourised images kind of move to the realm of entertainment and, and there's nothing really wrong with that, you know. Mm. And it's interesting to me that, you know, John Breslin and, and, and Rob Cross, they're both Twitter success stories in yes, a sense yeah, because yeah. these images, you know, they, they spark discussion and reflection on social media. I think that's the reason these books exist. And uh, Rob's hashtag is great, the colour of Ireland. And really what you're looking at is not just the images, but the, the memories, the discussion, mm. the flow therefrom. Uh, what I do like about uh, Rob's book is that it also makes a point of trying to include pictures from every county. So it's the colour of Ireland county by county. So that if you're from some of the more forgotten parts of the country, at least there is some depiction of, of what life was like in, in times past. I suppose ultimately there's a reminder in all of this, and it, it's a very 21st century problem, that people do need to approach all images, not just the old black and white ones, with a certain degree of scepticism. Yeah, fake news, uh, you know, that, that term that made its, its impact on our world in recent times. It isn't just colourised photos that you know, can be playful with the truth. There's a great little yarn about uh, a black and white series of images that appeared in, in the British press during the War of Independence. The Battle of Tralee on the front of the Illustrated London News, mm. a victory over the IRA, captured and dead rebels all over the place. And it's been discovered in recent times that actually those pictures were taken at Kalini in Dublin. <laughs> no such battle happened. Maybe the, it was a typo. Maybe they thought yeah, it was Killarney, not Kalini. The, the photographer was kind of doing his bit, you know, as it was for, for the British war effort. And okay. when morale was very, very low in Britain towards the, the war yeah. in Ireland, this was this it was, was a, sign as, of, a sign of some success in some battle somewhere. Fake news. So, you know, whenever we pick up a camera, we do have the power to, to distort as well. Uh, and that's before, you know, adding any colour to the equation. But look, mm. I think this, this project, Colour of Ireland, I think it's been an overwhelmingly good thing. Any engagement with the, the historic past and popular culture is a good thing. As I said, we owe a lot to Ferreter on that. Mm. And like history is in our lives in Ireland in a very real way. You know, we, the Sunday morning radio slots, yeah. uh, the printed press always dig into the archives. And if these projects kind of inspire people to go back and look at the originals, uh, then I think their job has been pretty successful. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.